you have your Bibles, if you'll keep them open in, in Mark chapter 15 this morning and 16. One of the things I hope that you heard uh, as, a, as the scripture was read, and if we were to back up and to read the whole chapter 15 of Mark, you would hear over and over again different people, uh, odd people, uh, that were surrounding Jesus or were there as Jesus was being crucified and as he was being put on the cross and as he rose from the dead. There are different people that are around. And one of the things that we see, not only in this passage, but if we were to go all the way through the book of Mark, one of the themes that has arisen is that people, people's lives are changed when they encounter Christ. That people are defined by this interaction that they have with Christ. I mean, we think back to the demoniac. <laughs> That's how we refer to him as. And we refer to him as the demoniac because he was once imprisoned by this demon possession. And then Jesus came along and, and freed him. And he's forever known as this title. I don't know if you think about it this way, but if Peter had never come in contact with Jesus, we wouldn't know anything about him. He'd just be this fisherman. Same way with all the disciples. There was nothing special about them until they encountered Jesus. As we think through this account, I want to go backwards just a little bit and start this morning by considering Pilate. If Pilate had never encountered Jesus, what would we know about him? Would we even be talking about Pilate? Pilate would just be another Roman governor in the long list of Roman governors that ruled a people with an iron fist in corrupt ways. But through Pilate's interaction with Jesus, we learned something. If we were to go back to chapter 15 and look at when Jesus was before Pilate, we would see that, you know, Pilate, we'd rediscover, as we did a couple weeks ago, we'd see that Pilate knew that Jesus wasn't guilty. He was asking the crowd, what do you want me to do with this man? It even says that he knew, he knew that the Jews had brought him there because of envy. He knew he was innocent. And then we get down to verses 14 and 15, and he even says... Why crucify him? What evil has this man done? Wishing to satisfy the crowd, he took him away and had Jesus beaten. The book of Matthew, the parallel account to this passage, has Pilate infamously washing his hands as to say this is out of my control, but we all know as Pilate encountered Jesus, Pilate had a choice to make. And he knew that this man was innocent, but because of political pressure, because of his own worry and desire for his own stature and his own status, he delivered him over to be killed. And it's interesting, in our passage today, Pilate reemerges, and I think it's interesting how he reemerges. If we look down at verse 42 through 45. That evening had come. We have Joseph. We'll talk about him in a moment. 
that he's coming and he he wants the body. And look in verse 44. This is significant. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. Pilate could have just given the body over, but Pilate was wondering for himself, is he dead? And then he says that he called a centurion, sent the centurion, and he questioned him as to whether he was dead. And then ascertaining from this centurion that Jesus was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. That one of the things that we see from this account is that Pilate wanted to make sure that Jesus was dead. And in fact, the word for when he granted the body, he granted the corpse. Mark is making the declaration here that Jesus was dead. Isn't this interesting? That Pilate was a witness to the reality that Jesus was dead. The death wasn't faked. He wasn't half dead or partially dead. He didn't faint. Jesus was dead. I wonder if in that moment, when Pilate receives this news, I wonder if his if he still had any conscience left of that he did the wrong thing. I wonder if he was bothered at all. Or I wonder if there was just a sense of, whew, it's over. Dodged a bullet. No insurrection, no uprising. This is done. So what do you think Pilate thought when he heard that the body wasn't in the grave anymore? What do you think came to Pilate's mind when he started hearing accounts that this man whom he knew was dead was up and walking around and talking to people. We'll never know. We'll never know. But what we do know is that Pilate's life was forever changed by his interaction with Jesus. And sad to say, sad to say, it's not the interaction that we would want or desire for him. But that instead of turning to Christ and hearing what he was saying and trusting him and trusting the message that he was giving, Pilate, Pilate looked at the situation and delivered him over. But as we read this account, there are others, aren't there? There are others. It's interesting. It's interesting that as we look at this account, there's some interesting like details that Mark gives us about some people that's just kind of odd. And the first one I want you to see is, is Simon. Look in verse 21. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country Simon the Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. You've been with us as we've journeyed through Mark. Mark didn't have to say Simon the Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. 
Mark often, as he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says things like this. A man was passing by and Jesus and, and the crowd, you know, the, the soldiers that were there pressed him into service. Why in the world does Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tell us that this was Simon, the Cyrene, the son of Alexander and Rufus? Why does he give us these identities? It would kind of be the same as saying, you know, Rebecca and John and Robin from California. Or Mark from California. Do we have any other Californians in here? Am I missing any of our Californians? It serves as an, an identifier. Oh, yeah, those, you know, that he was from Cyrene. Or, or what about this? I mean, we, we know this. If we were to say, you know, Greg, the son of Joe, the infamous Joe Lockhart. You say, poor Greg. No. It was identifying. And so this, this very fact that it was identifying, you're saying, well, identifying to whom? The early church that got this letter, that got this gospel, I'm proposing they knew who he was talking about. Oh, Simon. Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, the Cyrene. And he was known in the early church. I mean, think about it for a minute. We don't know much more about this guy. Cyrene is modern day Libya, the tip of Africa. There was a Jewish outpost there. And so uh, it was thought that probably Simon was coming in for Passover. He had come a long way to celebrate Passover. That's about all we know. We don't know. Are the boys with him? Did they watch him stoop down and carry the cross? Or think about this. Did he go back and tell them? The other thing that's interesting is that Simon wasn't this passerby that saw Jesus struggling to pick up the cross and then he said, oh, wait a minute, I need to help this man carry this cross. He was forced into service. He didn't volunteer. But yet, he's known. Yet, he's known. It's, it's interesting. We, we will never know this. I want to believe it's true. In the book of Romans, chapter 16. Book of Romans, chapter 16, verse 13. Sorry. Remember, at the, at the end of the book of Romans, Paul is writing and he's, he's, he's sending all these love greetings to all these people. And notice this one that pops up. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. And also his mother and mine. We don't know. But maybe this is the same boy. Maybe this is the same boy whose dad carried that cross. What we do know. What we do know. 
is that this man's life was changed by this interaction with Christ. He was known in that early church. As we go on and we are going through this account, and we've, we've touched on this on several occasions, but in verse 39, and this is kind of the way that Mark normally writes, the centurion, he doesn't give him a name, he doesn't give him any identifiers, but remember, it was the centurion who was standing right in front of him and saw the way he breathed his last. And he said, truly, this man is the son of God. This man is the first person in the book of Mark to correctly identify Jesus as the son of God. And he is not Jewish. He's a foreigner. He's a Gentile. And he makes this proclamation that surely this man is the Son of God. And again, the centurion wasn't there out of love for Jesus. He wasn't there out of some heart compassion for Jesus. He was there doing his job. And I believe in a minute, everything in his life was changed. And so potentially, think about this. You have Christ building His church and two of the earliest converts in the church was this passerby, maybe this devout Jew, and this Gentile. We'll never know. But what an unlikely group. Now, there's another unusual encounter as you heard spate read we get this account starting in verse 43 of joseph of arimathea again why does mark give us this qualifier that joseph joseph of arimathea we don't know anything else about joseph either i mean there's there's all these, this folklore around this Joseph that he was the first missionary to England, that he took the Holy Grail with him. If you Wikipedia him, that's what it's going to tell you. That he is probably in his dead hand somewhere is the Holy Grail. Not on Oak Island. My wife maybe imagines. But it's interesting here, again... That the reason I think that this qualifier is given about this man is that he was known in the early church. And let's, let's read what is said about him. It says, Joseph of Arimathea came. Notice what it says. A prominent member of the council. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Yes, that Sanhedrin. He was a member of this, this council that for three years had been trying to put Jesus to death. For three years had been trying to capture Jesus. And he was a prominent member of that council. One of the other parallel accounts did tell us that he did not agree. But we also hear from the book of John that he was a secret Christian. Here, it tells us that he was waiting on the kingdom of God. What we see is that he was a follower of Christ, but he wasn't one of those followers that was denying himself, picking up his cross and following. 
he kind of had his feet in both worlds. And so I wonder, as the deliberations were taking place on what to do with Jesus, did he stay silent? Did he skip that meeting? But here we have him. A prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom. He was a wealthy man. He had his own tomb in a garden. And he went and he asked for the body, for the corpse of Jesus. But there was some courage here. John tells us that Nicodemus was with him. And I want you to think about this for a moment. We have Simon who picked up the cross. Who I think at some point was face to face in that dirt with Jesus and saw the suffering that he was going through. We had the centurion that watched him die on that cross. And here we have Joseph. Joseph who handled the corpse. This is my imagination. Could you imagine maybe a meeting of the early church and that Joseph was a member of your house church or Joseph was a member of your congregation? And that Joseph, when he stood up and talked, he said, I touched his dead body. I rolled the stone. Plausibly, Nicodemus and I rolled the heavy stone. We sealed the tomb. A lot of the graves in those days, I can't think of a better word, but it was, it was cut out in a way to where there was like a gully where you could roll the stone down, seal the tomb. This is why Mary and these women were trying to find somebody to help. It would be much harder to roll it uphill than downhill. Joseph, Joseph's testimony in the early church would have been, I handled the body, I put it in the grave, and the tomb was sealed. You've heard me say this a lot. The Bible for its day and for our day as well, but for its day was really countercultural. And if you were going to write this story, if you were going to make it up, there is something that is just heavy in this text that we read that wouldn't have even been imaginable. Did you notice as Spate was reading the emphasis on the women? In verse 40, there were also some women looking on. This is as he was being crucified. From a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the less, and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. What's fascinating here is the prominence that these women, how they tie this whole account together. We have these other people that are interacting at different points. But what we see in this text is that these women had been with him in his ministry. They had been ministering to him. They had walked with him. And remember, we have said over and over that at the point where he was 
judged guilty, when he was on trial, when he was being crucified, all of his disciples, except John, left. Isn't it fascinating that the women didn't leave? They tie it all together. They were there at the crucifixion. They watched him breathe his last, as did the centurion. And they were at the tomb. They were still ministering to his dead body. And then we get starting in chapter 16. Again, this would have been scandalous in this day to make to make up a story where these women were such served such a prominent role. But when the Sabbath was, Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they may come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb where the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? Is this because there was not a man that had the courage to go with them to help them to move the stone? Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting right as sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Don't be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who had been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go and tell the disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. That it's these women. The least of these who were told by this angel, he is not here, go and tell the disciples and Peter. The first to proclaim the message that he is risen. And notice again that they're named three times in this passage. We get their names. Mary Magdalene, verse 40, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the less, and Joseph and Salome. We get it again in verse 47. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, were looking to see where he was laid. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they may anoint him. Again, they were known. How would you love for these women to be sitting with your teenage daughter over coffee? How would you love to hear these women sing praises to Jesus who they knew firsthand was risen from the grave? How would you Love to be in church with these women. Jesus is still building his church. If we were to go to Acts 1.1. As the writer of the book of Acts is writing. And he tells us in the, in the very first. It's interesting one of the, the phrases that is used there. He said. The last book that I wrote you, the book of Luke, 
I wrote to you all that Jesus began to do and teach. Did you catch that? Began, meaning that Jesus is still doing something. He is still building His church. And brothers and sisters, we are here. If you are a believer in Christ, you are a part of the church that He is building. We are here because we have seen and witnessed the resurrected Christ. We, we weren't there at the cross physically, but that through this book, through this gospel, we have been told the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And as we read, as we hear, we encounter Christ. And your life can be changed. This is why we support the Gideons. Because we want to see the Word of God placed in people's hands so that as they open God's Word, they can read and encounter Christ. This is why we support local missions and we do it in the way that we do it is because we want to see the Word of God and the power of the Gospel transform our community. This is why we support global missions for the same purpose because we want to see and be a part of the Word of God and the Gospel of God going to the nations. This is why we do things at this church like Celebrate Recovery because we believe that people need the power of the Word of God so that their lives can be changed. This is why we do what we do. And you are called. You are called to go and to proclaim the Word of God. And maybe as we look back and we look at some of these folks and we say, man, what a strange bunch to be gathered together, I look at you and say, man, what a strange bunch to be gathered together. I, I, I mean, some of you have testimonies that you grew up hard. And you may be sitting next to somebody who has never missed a Sunday school in their life. Some of you work with your hands and can fix anything and some of you have not had dirt under your fingernails in 10 years I mentioned it earlier but one of the things that I love in this church is I do love when I see some of our widows and our teenagers interacting and hanging out why in the world would that interaction take place other than we are a family of God that is being built up and it brings us in community circled and based on one thing, and that is what the gospel has done. We have had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you this morning, how will you be known? How will you be known? One of the things that I pray for and I'm reminded of this time of year is we have our children in the service. Man, 
I really hope that 50 years from now, we're, we're doing things like we're talking about those Longbrook boys or the ARP kids or Amelia. And, and when we're referencing them, what we're referencing is we're given a qualifier because we know who they are because of the encounter with the gospel and they've been built up in the church and they're a prominent member of the church and they're carrying forward that gospel. And so when we make that name, we know what we're talking about. And parents, it's not that they're rowdy. <laughs> it's that the gospel has so gripped them in their lives that when we mention these names, we know what's going on. And it's taken place. It's taken place. I mean, I know that, you know, some of the things that I think of often is, and praise the Lord for, you know, if I say, Pat Cassabaum, Pat the Stephen minister, probably half this church has been ministered by her. If I say, Diane Cross, we think of somebody who is faithfully serving us through Mills Ministry. There's no reason you would want to coordinate and do something like that unless something had happened in your life and you're wanting to give. Or even when we think about, you know, one of the qualifiers that I thought of is, you know, if We've been praying for Granny. And how do we know Granny? Leah's mom. So when we put that qualifier, oh yeah, Leah. Man, she's such a gift to our body. I pray. I pray that we're speaking this way of you. Drew and Luke and Susanna. That this is who we are. That we're a people who carry the testimony of Christ within us. And that we're a people who are known by who we've become because of Him. Will you be known this way? Will you be known this way? Will we be a people... Will we be a people whose gathering only makes sense in light of what God has done for us? Brothers and sisters, let's not be lulled away by the world to think that our identity comes from anything else. But let's walk the path that He has set for us and proudly proclaim what He has done for us so that for the generations to come, we might be known. We might be known for who He is and what He has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am still struck by the words so often thought of in my own head that we were alien and hostile, but You. 
being rich in mercy because of your great love loved us. God, I pray that we would never get over the reality of the gospel. That not only has it changed us, but it is changing us. And God, I pray that we would be a people that are known by our encounter with you. Because it is how we are known. There's no more important thing than what we do with the gospel. God, I pray that we would live it and proclaim it. It's in your son's name. The only name in which all of this is possible, Jesus. Amen.